0: On October 21st, 2021, Willie Smith III was executed. He forfeited his life for committing the kidnapping, robbery, and murder of a young woman in Birmingham, Alabama. In this unique episode of Killing and Hidden, we'll follow this death penalty case from arrest to conclusion, so you can get a little glimpse behind the veil. About bad things. Welcome, welcome, welcome into Killin'ness and Hidden, your favoriteist, podcast of all time. And I'm your favorite favoriteest podcast host of all time, your old buddy Brad. Alright, we're doing something really different today. I actually I debated on whether or not to even try this because I worry that it's gonna be too dry. So if it gets dry, I'm sorry. I'm doing my best to keep this entertaining. In fact, I have recorded this more than once in an effort to do so. But I also think it's something that's important to talk about. And, you know, I'm a lawyer. I'm a former criminal trial lawyer. And I'm always shocked at how little people know about the criminal justice system. So I guess we're just going to have a little civics lesson today. It's mixed in with the case. You'll get to hear some gory details and all that stuff, but we're going to talk a little bit. It's going to be basically half kind of a normal true crime case and then half kind of how executions play out, at least in Alabama. Okay. So this is like truly a routine capital murder case in Alabama. This is how it almost always plays out. There's nothing odd about this one. There's nothing special about it from the crime itself through the appellate process and trial, all the way through the execution. This is just what you expect to see. And I think no one really knows that. And there's, we have people out in the world who say, why does it take so long to execute these people? You know, they should be found guilty and then just shot in the head. It's not really how our systems design. We've got all these fail safes in there in an effort to keep innocent from people from, you know, suffering some sort of bad fate. Doesn't always work very well, but you know, regardless. So this is involving a protagonist by the name of Willie B. Smith, the third, and he was executed on October 21st, 2021. Spoiler alert, I guess. He does not survive our story. But, I mean, it's not as interesting to talk about one where it's still pending. Plus, I don't know how much trouble I'd get in by doing that. Um, As many of y'all know, or should know, I do work for the Alabama judicial system, actually for the Alabama Supreme Court. So, I'm privy to a lot of stuff, but... People think I get to peek behind the curtain and see what goes on. I don't, I like, (laughs) I'm just a peon in this whole game. I see what the public sees, you know, I literally, literally, literally have never been privy to any confidential communications the court has engaged in. Like when they're back in conference discussing a case, I have no idea. Who's even in attendance, much less which cases are being discussed, what order they're being discussed in, and who's on what side of the issue, okay? So all of this is basically coming from the trial records, the appellate records, and just my general experiences as an attorney. So there's no show notes this week. Um, You know, I didn't rely on any newspaper articles or documentaries because I kind of had everything, right? So... I hope you enjoy this. I will warn you it's going to be a little bit dry. I'm going to do my best to kind of cut out a lot of the dry parts. But let's get into this one, okay? So our tale of Willie begins way back on October 26, 1991. And it's going to take place in Birmingham, Alabama. Let me tell you up front, we're going to cover a couple cities. And I'm going to give you a quick little verbal map. That'll maybe help you understand where we are when I throw all these cities out, because I'm going to default to being a native Alabamian and just assume that everybody else is and that's stupid. So, Birmingham is where we're taking place, okay? Birmingham's biggest city in Alabama. It's just north of the dead center of the state. There's two neighborhoods that come into play here, Roebuck and Huffman. They're on the north side of Birmingham. There's another police agency that comes into play, the Hoover Police Department. Hoover is a city just south of Birmingham. And kind of the way it works is Birmingham's not a very wealthy city. It's a not a very clean city. It's not a very safe city. Now, there are lots of efforts being made to kind of clean it up, create some nightlife and things like that. And so there's pockets in downtown Birmingham that are really cool and safe and well patrolled and all that. But overall, if you just randomly drop me off in Birmingham and tell me to get back to safety, there's a good chance that's going to be tough. Um, It is not a place you want to be after dark in general. Roebuck and Huffman are communities within Birmingham they are not on the wealthier side of Birmingham, so they're relatively unsafe. Again, pockets of safety. Overall, you don't want to be walking around at midnight down there. Hoover, down south, that is where all the you know rich people, all the people who make money out of Birmingham, they live in Hoover. Um, so it's a very wealthy city, you know, generally pretty safe. There's certainly pockets where it's not safe, but overall, if you're lost in Hoover, you're probably going to be fine. Okay. So, north or from south to north, you've got Hoover, then you move into Birmingham. And at the north end of Birmingham, you've got Huffman and Roebuck. All right. I hope that kind of offers you a little map as we get into the facts here. So, October 26, 1991, Birmingham, Alabama, we've got Willie who's only 22 years old, decides to leave his apartment with his roommate, Angelica Willis, who's 17 years old, and they're leaving to go find her brother, Lorenzo. He's working at a local pizza hut. His shift is due to end soon, and they want to go hook up with him. So they travel on foot to hit up this pizza hut. Now, while they're on this journey, and I don't know why, Willie notices someone stopped at an atm that someone is sharma ruth johnson and she's withdrawing money willie literally makes a 90 90 degree turn uh walking instead of towards pizza hut now he's walking towards the atm and the car he gets up to the passenger window and knocks the miss johnson rolls down her window and he asked her if he if she happened to know where the closest Crystals restaurant was. She said she didn't. Willie walked around the back of her car and came up to her passenger door and pulled off a hidden pulled out a hidden sawed off shotgun and removed her from the vehicle at gunpoint. He forced her into the trunk and shut the trunk. Now, his plan was he was going to use her ATM card to get some cash. For whatever reason, he does not withdraw the money at this ATM machine. Instead, he decides to drive up to Huffman to do this. Now, from where the crime took place to where he went in Huffman, if Google Maps is telling me the truth, is about 12 miles. He gets all the way there and finds out... The ATM card was dropped during the scuffle and it's sitting back at the original ATM there on the pavement. Ah, So Lily drives back to Birmingham, back to where all this started and finds the ATM card. He yells at Miss Johnson. She, you know, voluntarily and quickly, freely gives up her PIN number or I guess just PIN. Pin number is kind of redundant, right? Um, and Willie uses it to withdraw money from the ATM that they started at. Naturally, during this process, from when he's picking up the card and to where he's punching the pin and withdrawing the money, Willie is staring directly into a security camera. The police do not have some like grainy security footage of Willie. They've got a freaking glamor shot basically of him. So there is no doubt in anyone's mind that Willie's the dude pulling this off. I didn't mention this and I should have, but Angelica came along for the ride. She's hanging out in the passenger seat. I don't know why he takes the car and they go pick up Lorenzo from Pizza Hut in this new ride. Lorenzo never asks where it comes from or anything like that. He just kind of rolls with it. I guess that's why they liked Lorenzo so much. Willie decides the car is low on gas so using the money he withdrew, the $80 did I mention that? That he's doing this for $80? I think I did. Um, He pulls into a local Texaco and starts filling up Using the money he stole. He's on, of course, there's security cameras everywhere. So they catch him parking, walking inside, paying for the gas, walking outside, filling up the car. All right. Well, during this fueling process, for some reason, Lorenzo loses his mind. Like he discovers that Miss Johnson's in the trunk and he goes bananas. He starts just screaming at her with all these, you know, really sexually charged threats. And he got so out of control that Angelica and Willie had to like pull him out of the car and sit him down and tell him to chill. And I just cannot imagine what this conversation is like. It makes me think back to the eighties. I think it was in the late eighties. It may have been the early nineties when Guns N' Roses had to kick Duff out of the band because of his drug use. And I've just always thought, I cannot imagine having a guy named Slash and a guy named Axel sit down with you and say, we're worried that you're doing too many drugs. You know, I I can't imagine what the conversation was like here either. Like was Willie telling Lorenzo, look, we're going to kill her, but we're going to do this in a civilized way. You need to calm down. But whatever... He said to Lorenzo, he eventually got him calmed down. He's able to sit in the back seat without wanting to like chew through it like a dog to get at this woman. So Willie takes the vehicle with his two passengers and one hostage to what is now, or what I believe is now, the Zion Memorial Gardens in Huffman. When they arrive, Willie, you know, they get out of the car and Willie says, we're just going to have to kill her. You know, Mrs. Johnson's seen our faces. She's heard our voices. Uh, Yeah, we got to kill her. So they go around to the back of the vehicle and Lorenzo and Angelica kind of take a few steps back. Willie gets up close. And he basically tells, he announces to Mrs. Johnson that, you know, I'm sorry, but we're going to have to kill you. He opens up the trunk and of course she starts panicking as any person would and she's begging for her life. She promises she won't go to the police. She'll give them, you know, whatever. You you want more money? I'll get you more money. Whatever. But it ends with Willie pulling up his shotgun and shooting her point blank in the side of the head. Obviously this is not a wound she could survive. The threesome get back in the vehicle with a corpse down the trunk, and Willie drives three miles over to Roebuck, where they attempt to hide the vehicle. They abandon it off-road, cover it up with, you know, branches and crap like that. And just leave it there. That night, Willie can't sleep too well. He's bothered by where they left the vehicle. So early the next morning he gets up. He goes out to where the vehicle And Mrs. Johnson's body is sitting and he sets the car on fire. So basically he's gone from having a car that's hidden in shrubbery to making a giant smoke signal, right? Really smart. Really well done, Willie. He said he did it. He wanted to burn it so that no evidence could trace the crime back to him. Now, All right, there's there's some thinking there, there's some degree of intelligence. So, you know, we know Willie's got a bit of a brain. But then he has a party that night after burning the vehicle. And at this party, he just tells everybody about what he's done. Like literally, it's almost like that's the reason he's having the party is to celebrate killing this woman. You know, family, friends, everyone. He's, you know, at the trial, multiple witnesses testified that Willie was going on and on bragging about how he killed a white woman. For some reason, the different race made a big deal to him. And he basically acted like he was really proud. Like he had accomplished some sort of goal. It's not, not the talk of a well man, right? Well, it just so happened that one of the people at this party was a chick by the name of a Rochelle. Latonya just happened to be a confidential informant for the Hoover Police Department. Never learned what she did to get herself in that position, but basically she was facing jail time if she didn't help the Hoover Police make some cases. Well, she goes back to them the next day after this party and says, I know a dude who murdered somebody and I don't think y'all even know that she's been murdered. (laughs) And so Hoover... PD reaches out to Birmingham PD and they kind of join forces and decide to wire up Latanya to see if she can't get Willie to kind of, you know, hamstring himself on tape. So she goes back to Willie's house and she starts, you know, Hey, I just want to hang out with you and all that. And so they're doing their thing. They're chilling and, She was like, we didn't talk last night, man. Tell me about what happened with that white woman. And so Willie goes through the story and like, he's giddy almost, you know, he is just so proud of himself. He tells her every detail, how he got the car, how he pulled the gun on her, how he forced Miss Johnson into the trunk, how they got the money and, you know, how he went back and burned the car everything everything he then said that you know his plan was he was gonna up and leave the area for a few weeks let everything calm down um he said he was worried because he had learned before killing Mrs. Johnson from the stuff that she had in her front seat that her brother happened to be a Birmingham police officer and you just don't mess with cops families nothing good ever comes from that he also told Latanya that the reason he killed miss johnson was he couldn't risk her going to the police and that when she, he got really mad when she said she wouldn't do it because he knew that she was lying then he goes into like extremely graphic detail about the shooting like way overboard and he's talking about the splatter and how the head looked and is almost and does it in a way that is almost mocking miss johnson like he's proud of what he's done and clearly has no respect for the victim whatsoever it's just a cool part of the story to him you know awesome guy here we all love willie don't we Well, Willie of course gets arrested not long after this because he can't keep his daggum mouth shut and he's on tape confessing to everything by this time they've been through the car they found some forensic evidence they've got those glamour shots from the security footage of him so he's boned right he's boned not only that but they went the police went or i'm sorry the prosecutors went to Lorenzo and Angelica and said, you're going to be charged for this murder, too, because you are an accessory. But if you'll testify against Willie, we won't look for the death penalty. We won't even charge you with capital murder. We'll give you just a straight up murder charge. And, you know, I, th- I think they got a sentence of 20 years in, ex- in exchange for testifying against Willie. All right. Now, just to clarify, there's a difference between murder and capital murder, at least in Alabama. Murder is just killing somebody. Capital murder, you have to murder somebody in the course of another felony. So if you rob somebody and shoot them, that's capital murder. If you rape somebody and kill them, that's capital murder. If you murder one person, then murder a second. That's capital murder. (laughs) Um... You know, just shooting, killing someone alone is not enough to get to that level. But clearly here, Willie kidnapped and robbed poor Miss Johnson before he killed her. So he's done enough to get to that level. You can't plead guilty to capital murder in Alabama. You've got to have a trial. And so Willie gets appointed counsel and they have to suffer through this thing. I'm sure it's just... Nothing's worse than sitting in a trial where you've got no defense and it's just you spending day after day in that courtroom, just being whooped on by the prosecution and the jury staring holes at you because they hate you because they think that you're on team Willie's side or whoever the defendant is, you know? Um, So they do all that and he's found guilty. Now with the capital murder, There's actually kind of two trials. There's the guilt phase and there's the punishment phase. So on the guilt phase, you know, jury agreed he committed the crime and he was found guilty of capital murder. So then you get a second trial for the sentencing phase. And the focus of this is more who is Willie versus what he's done and what is the appropriate punishment. And, You know, actually, I know, you know, people, Alabama is a very red state. We're very conservative. You know, we're very anti-crime. You know, you got to be hard on criminals and all that stuff. But we do, at least in design, have a pretty good process when it comes to capital murder, because it's not like on TV where, you know, you're found guilty and then you're instantly sentenced to something. When you're found guilty of any felony, really, but particularly capital murder, the judge will appoint a probation officer to do kind of a workup on your history. And so they'll submit their report and it will have, you know, kind of your educational history, your work history, your socioeconomic history, your, you know, if you've had health problems, it'll be in there. It's a pretty comprehensive report, assuming you've got a PO that does a good job that really does give the court a fair overview of this defendant's life. And that's something that's taken into consideration because the thinking is, you know, somebody who very low intelligence, who's very easily influenced by others and kind of gets pushed into committing a murder or taking the fall for a murder probably deserves a different sentence than somebody who is intelligent and scheming and, you know, calculates how they're going to commit this murder. You know, the, I, I think most people would agree that while the end result is the same in both cases, you know, somebody died, the person and how they got there probably don't need to be treated Equally, The punishments don't need to be identical. That's something that people don't understand is we don't, you really don't want just to have, you commit robbery, you get three years. You know, it doesn't need to be that black and white. We need to take into consideration the person who committed the crime because some people deserve to go to jail for a lot longer. You know, if they're a career criminal, they've been robbing their whole life. They deserve something more than a three-year sentence. Same token, the classic story—we, you know, someone robs a grocery store to get food to feed their family. You know, that's the old heartbreaking one. You're gonna punish them differently than the career criminal. So that's why we do all this. When you have the sentencing trial or hearing, um, you still have a jury seated. And both sides get called witnesses, but they're talking a lot more about Willie and what he's done, as well as the victim and how it's impacted the victim's family's life. Um, so the judge gets to hear from both sides, but ultimately it's the jury who decides what the punishment is, at least now. Back in 1992, when Willie's trial occurred, the law at the time allowed for something called judicial override. So what happens is the jury is there and they hear all this evidence and then they go back and deliberate and then they come out and say, you know, we recommend that this person receive life without parole or we recommend that this person receive the death penalty. Those are the only two possible sentences when you're convicted of capital murder. And. It does not have to be unanimous. In fact, here in Willie's case, the jury voted 10 to 2 in favor of the death sentence. That judicial override thing I was talking about, it used to be that the judge would take the jury's determination as a recommendation only. So if they came out, you know, here in Willie's case, 10 to 2 saying we want the death penalty, judge could say, I just don't feel like the death penalty is warranted here. I'm going to give you life without. The opposite's true. They could vote 10 to 2 for life without. he say, no, this, this was a heinous crime. Death penalty's got to apply here. I'm I'm overriding your recommendation. The law changed recently in 2017 or 2018, I forget which, so that now a judge can only override to reduce the sentence because there was a whole bunch of studies done by the Equal Justice Initiative and the Southern Poverty Law Center and academic sorts that found that judges liked using judicial override and like 80 to 85% of the time the override would be against a recommendation for life without parole. They, They would use it to impose the death penalty rather than use it to impose the lesser sentence of life without parole. So now judges still have judicial override, but they can only use it to overrule a recommendation of death and impose instead life without parole. Doesn't happen with Willie, though. He gets his he gets sentenced to execution. Now he gets to go through all the fun appeals process. And that's just a whole world in and of itself. I'll try to summarize it quickly, though. But once you're found guilty of capital murder and you're sentenced to death, you get an automatic right of to appeal to the Alabama Court of Criminal Appeals. It's an intermediate appellate court. They review everything. Like, you know, traditionally in an appeal, you raise the issues you want the court to look at. And a death penalty the case, they look at everything. The, you know, how the jury was selected. How, you know, testimony that was given to witnesses, whether the judge was making the right evidentiary calls, whether whether the judge uh, gave good jury instructions, everything. And if they find any flaws with the process, they will either remand it so the flaw can be corrected, or they will reverse and demand a new trial be held. It's not common. Most, now, let me, Let me qualify that. It's not common to require a new trial. It's somewhat common to require the judge to redo their sentencing orders. There's lots of things a judge has to talk about in their sentencing order before they issue a death sentence. And in Willie's case, in fact, it kind of pinballed between the Court of Criminal Appeals and the trial court a few times because the judge... Didn't really dot all his eyes and cross all his t's, but eventually he got there. Once the court of criminal appeals affirms a decision and says, "Yeah, you know everything looks good," that's the end of your right to appeal. You still have the option to try to bring it to the Alabama Supreme Court through what's called a writ of certiorari. That is a filing where you are saying only the Court of Criminal Appeals screwed up something. You cannot argue that the trial court screwed up. You're only arguing that the Court of Criminal Appeals screwed up. Well, how often do you think those are granted? Virtually never. System's kind of the same in federal court. If if you're found guilty of a crime in federal court, you can appeal it to the circuit court. You start off in district court, you go to circuit court. So like in Alabama, say if, If Willie had been arrested and charged with a federal crime in Birmingham, his trial would be held in the Northern District of Alabama. If he's found guilty, then he would get to appeal it to the Eleventh Circuit Court of Appeals, and then from there he could file a writ of certiorari to the U.S. Supreme Court. Exact same deal, though. He would be challenging what the Eleventh Circuit did when he's going in front of the Supreme Court, rather than what the trial court did. Once all that's done. If you don't win, if you're still, you know, facing execution, then you get to file in Alabama, at least what's called a rule 32 petition, which is you challenge some aspect of the trial that fundamentally was wrong, like not evidence, not witness statements. You don't get into that crap. It's more and it's almost always exclusively used for my attorney done me wrong. And let me tell you, there's nothing as much fun as being appointed to represent a guy, getting paid next to nothing, still doing your best, trying to save his life. And then a few years later, find out that he's filed a Rule 32 petition, and you have to go to court and testify and explain yourself and all the decisions you made from a case five, eight, ten years ago. So, you go through the Rule 32 petition, those rarely succeed in a trial court. You get to appeal that up to the intermediate court, which, again, is the Court of Criminal Appeals. Those appeals rarely go anywhere. Again, you can fire a certiorari petition with the Supreme Court. Those very, very, very rarely go anywhere. And at that point, most of your appeals are done. You can still... Go to federal court, though, and file an appeal there saying that some process that Alabama used violated your federal civil rights and do the same, you know, have a hearing in district court, get it appealed to, to the 11th circuit. Anyway, there's lots of appeals in place. We There's lots and lots of opportunities for an error to be corrected in a death penalty case. And I will say that when I was a practicing attorney, I had the jaded attitude that, you know, we're in a Republican state. We're very law and order-ish. We're very pro-prosecution, very anti-crime. Every member of the appellate courts are Republicans. And so they're just going to rubber stamp everything that the prosecutors did. Having worked now for the judicial system, I was very surprised and pleased to see that the judges really do take their responsibility seriously. Most of them do. There's exceptions. There's there's people that want to be judges and there's people that want to be politicians, you know, Um, and so they would reverse or remand cases pretty regularly to straighten things out. My experience has been, if it's a particularly political case, maybe they work more in a manner that the ends justify the means. But uh, by and large, it's pretty fair. It's it's pretty fair. It's hard because most of the defendants, you know, are not wealthy. They can't afford their own attorneys. And the quality of representation you get varies, you know, from county to county. Um, But it, it, it works better than I honestly thought it did when I was in practice. So all of that is a big reason why it takes so long to get to the execution phase, which is what we're going to talk about now. Okay, so we've got Willie. He's been through all of his appeals. So many of them. And now he's sitting on death row waiting to get executed. So how do we go about executing someone? Well, in Alabama, it's super simple but chaotic. The attorney general, who is an elected official, is the one that decides who's up next to bat on death row. Generally, they go for whoever's been there the longest. Sometimes they don't. Um, again, there could be politics that enter into it, but in my experience, most of the time it's going to be whoever's been there the longest. They file a petition with the Alabama Supreme Court and say, "We'd like to execute this person. Will you please set a date for the execution? It's actually one of my jobs to coordinate that and make it happen. So what we have to do is call the warden of the prison where the execution will be held find out when's a good time for them because certainly we don't want to schedule an execution on a day, you know, when they've got a bunch of people there out on vacation or whatever. Um, So we get a good date from them, compare it to the court's calendar, make sure it doesn't conflict with anything there. And then we, you know, I'll do up a memo for the court saying it looks like this is going to be the best date and the court votes on it, either approves it or, doesn't approve it. Fortunately, they've always approved it since I've been there. Now, under Alabama law, we have the rule that, you know, you can't set an execution for next week. You know, you've got to give at least 30 days notice before the execution can occur. Likewise, you can't set the execution for May of 2025. You can't, under our law, you can't set an execution more than 100 days out. So you've got a kind of narrow window to work with there. But it seems to be pretty fair because it forces things to move along quickly after being kind of stagnated for so long. Once the order issues, the marshal of the court has to go serve the order, which is now called a death warrant, which I think is really cool. And he has to drive it down and serve it on the warden. It used to be he had to serve on the prisoner himself, but that created some security issues, so now... It served on the warden, and the warden certifies in an affidavit that he or she served it on the inmate. Then copies of that death warrant get sent out to daggum near everybody. Every attorney involved in the case, the governor of the state, the lower courts that were involved in the case. We even send it off to the U.S. Supreme Court so they can be aware that this is going on. There's actually a wonderful girl who works in Washington for the U.S. Supreme Court who holds the title of death clerk. Yes, I am not making that up. That is 100% true. You can have a job in the federal government as the death clerk. How cool is that? Okay, it's not the official title. Like I I I think it's the clerk in charge of, you know, extraordinary matters or something like that, but everybody calls her the death clerk. Sadly, the one we have is leaving at the end of the year. She has been so great to work with and so awesome. We're going to miss her. But I'm sure she's moving on to bigger and better things. But she's you know, coordinating executions across all of the United States. We're going through a lot. Let's see, this is the dry stuff I was talking about. This is what I've worked so hard to try to make at least somewhat interesting. So now guess what happens when that death warrant goes out? You get a whole new set of appeals. Yep. So you can go through the Alabama courts and the federal courts again. In my experience, almost all the arguments made are of a federal nature, so there's not much for the Alabama courts to do. One retired justice, I remember saying that, well, if the feds want to stop the execution, they can, but they ain't argued nothing that would stop it under Alabama law. So it goes through all that, and inevitably it goes through the process at the 11th hour, literally. Um, In fact, in Willie's case, he was going to be executed back in February, but he filed a challenge to it on the grounds that Alabama wouldn't let his spiritual advisor into the execution chamber, which was proper under federal law until Willie made this challenge and now it's been changed so that we have to allow spiritual advisors into the execution chamber protocols by the department of corrections, I think, and I may be wrong about this because I know they change all the time, but at least at one time, even the warden couldn't enter the the execution chamber for security reasons. (laughs) But now we get to have spiritual advisors and it's whoever the inmate wants. They get to pick, you know, it can be a priest, a rabbi, or it can just be some new age guru that somebody from like Kramer on Seinfeld would, you know, want to pick. So it does create a little bit of a security issue, but that caused the case to be delayed because the U Supre- S Supreme court could never, it could not reach a decision in time as to whether or not this violated Willie's rights. And so one of the, Weird things is a death warrant under Alabama law is valid for exactly 24 hours. And so if you cannot complete the execution before the end of the day, you're not allowed to begin the process at all. And I remember it was like 1115 or 1130 when the attorney general called me and said, we're just not going to be able to do this one. That's another fun aspect of my job is I have to be the one to update the court as to what's going on. And that makes for some late nights, some nights. So I've cut out a lot of dry stuff just, yeah, you know, I mean, I, cause I can, I, when we can go into the discussion of Murphy versus Collier, which is what established, you know, how you deal with spiritual people, advisors and all that. But we, you know, we covered the bulk of it. We're, we're doing good. So Once that was resolved, uh, Alabama changed their protocols to allow for a spiritual advisor to come in after that decision. And so then the state filed a second request for an execution date for Willie. And that's how we got the October 21st date. Now, there was a secondary issue to Willie's case that I thought was interesting. And the federal courts completely disagreed with me. See, while Willie was incarcerated, Alabama has traditionally used lethal injection as a means of execution, but because drugs are getting harder and harder to find, because pharmaceutical companies refuse to sell drugs to states for the purposes of execution, back on January 1st of 2018, Alabama sort of changed its execution protocols and now allows an inmate to opt for nitrogen hypoxia rather than lethal injection for their execution. The problem with this was our legislature is made up of a bunch of non-attorneys. At one time, it was like 18% attorneys was all, which is fine. People can elect who they want, but the problem with that is People don't really understand how the laws impact everyday life unless they deal with them on an everyday basis. And so when the legislature made this change, one of the unanswered questions that was left hanging out there is, well, does this change apply to everybody on death row? Is it only for new death row admittees? And it hasn't been brought before the courts to get an answer to that question. So apparently from some of the civil litigation Willie was involved in, I noticed that there were at least allegations made. I don't know how truthful or accurate these were that because of these questions, the warden at the time took it upon herself to take forms to every death row inmate. And told them you have 30 days to decide whether or not you want to die via lethal injection or through the the uh, nitrogen hypoxia. Well, Willie, as you in case you haven't figured this out, wasn't a terribly bright dude. In fact, when he was tested, he had he was tested with an IQ right around the mentally handicapped area. I don't remember the exact numbers. I want to say it was in the 70s. And he made the argument to the federal courts through a civil action that actually was pending up until the day of his death that it was a violation of the Americans with Disabilities Act for him just to be handed this form and not being given access to counsel to help him understand what was going on with this form or for some other sort of representative to help explain to him the choice he needed to make. And so he never returned this form to the warden. Again, um, that seemed like something federal courts would jump all over. They didn't care. And so that civil litigation continued up until the day of his execution. The judge, the federal judge in that case said, I'm not stopping a criminal sentence from being carried forward to resolve a civil trial. And so the answer still remains unresolved over who gets to benefit from this choice, how they can go about doing it, and the manner in which they do it, which eventually will have to be fleshed out. But because our legislature didn't think it through, we have that question hanging over all of our future executions heads. So Willie was executed. October 21st, 2021, I believe it was around 10 or 1030, that the process was complete and he was ruled or he was uh, determined to be dead by lethal injection. He was 52 years old at the time of his death. He had been on death row for 30 years because remember he was 22 when he committed the crime. His victim, Miss Johnson, she was only 22 or 23 when she was killed by Willie. So he spent more time on death row than she spent on this earth. Again, this is a typical run-of-the-mill death penalty case in Alabama. There is nothing exceptional about this. There's nothing noteworthy about this. This is just how it goes every time. It's a bit of a roller coaster ride, as you can tell, because you have all this uncertainty about whether or not the execution will actually go forward. And you know, a lot of people who are anti-death penalty point to that as being one of the points why we should consider getting rid of the death penalty, because there is an argument, and I think it's a legitimate argument. You know, I don't, I don't think it's it's one without any merit uh, that having someone know the date of their execution, have the date of the execution come, and then, you know, in like in Willie's case at 1130, after sitting there for 23 and a half hours, learning that that's ah, not gonna happen today. We'll have to reschedule it. Arguably could be violative of the Eighth Amendment as cruel and unusual punishment. That's you know, I don't want to turn this into a political discussion. I understand that argument. My problem with the system, again, I don't take a side. I have the philosophy generally in life that I don't care too much what the rules are. I just want to know what they are (laughs) so I can follow them and uh, do right. So whether we have the death penalty or not is not something I really have a passionate opinion on. I do not like how we implement it. Personally, because I put myself in the victim's family shoes, you know, um, this woman, again, was very young when she was killed and her family has had to wait 30 years for the sentence to be carried out. I don't know, you know, if I was in that situation, I don't know that I could really begin healing very well until the sentence was carried out, you know, until we closed the book on it. Which means for thirty years you're just living with that kind of hanging over your head. I, I just I wish there was a way we could expedite things. Frankly, if, if I what if I had a member of my family be killed and the defendant, you know, receive the be charged with capital murder, I would ask the court because victims' families get to give a statement during the sentencing process, I would ask the court to consider life without parole. Just because once that sentence in- is entered, it's kind of done. You don't get near as many appeals. You don't get near as many protections if you're the defendant. That's that's um, in life in prison for life. So I think it, for me, it would just be a lot healthier to have that done and then I could move on with my life. I'm not someone who needs, you know, an eye for an eye or or things like that. But again, that's just my opinion. Again, saying that this was a, um, a normal death penalty case, I almost considered doing an abnormal one, but I thought that would kind of misrepresent the system. But we did have a dude who survived his execution date seven different times. One way or another, he got to stay in on his death warrant seven different times. And it, I mean, it honestly got to the, <laughs> to the point where people were just saying, we're going to have to find a way to kill this, this guy. Cause he has more lives than a cat. Um, his luck finally ran out, but, Um, his case was always very entertaining to me because it was, it was like a Tom and Jerry's cartoon where he just kept slipping through the cracks. He kept slipping through the cracks. I don't, you know, I, I am a former criminal defense attorney. I'm much more understanding of criminals and their actions than the average person, but I don't want anyone to walk away from this episode thinking that I have any pity from, for Willie here. Um, I don't. He kidnapped and executed a young woman and then burned her body to try to hide the evidence over $80, which is as it's $80. That is so dumb to me. That doesn't do any. I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. He then bragged about this crime to anyone who would listen, Um, you know to the extent that I sounded disappointed or remorseful in any way, it was purely because of the way our system handles these cases and how long it takes. That just drives me crazy. I wish we could, if we're going to do executions, we've got to streamline it. We've got to get it set in a way so that, you know, executions are being carried out within four or five years instead of 30, 35 years. I also think we need to um, have a system in place so there's no politicizing who goes next. Um, Attorney General, very respectable office, has a lot of responsibility, should be someone who's trusted. We've had a lot of good Attorney Generals, had a few bad ones, Um, but I think having them just be able to wildly pick whoever they want I mean, there's no protocol that would prevent the attorney general from picking the newest member of death row to be next up in line. Um, And we've had at least one situation recently where an inmate was in the process of dying from heart failure, and they tried to get his execution scheduled before he died. And to me, that's just not a good use of of resources. Um, You know, so I I really do wish we really went just in seniority over who was up next and we took that choice away from the ag's office because i don't understand the need or the benefit of allowing the ag to make that decision rather than just allowing the department of corrections to send over a list every six months or whatever saying here's you know the 10 oldest or the 10 most senior folks on death row i also think while i'm on my soapbox here i also think we should all take this case as a reminder. We need to be aware of our surroundings. That will save you from becoming a victim a lot of the time. I, and When I was in college, in undergrad, um, one of my criminology professors, that he, he was very much into the idea of, you know, most people become victims because they put themselves in a position to become victims. I, I'm not here to support or deny that statement, but I think there is some wisdom in that, at least from the people I represented and the people they victimized. Here, Ms. Johnson and please, before I even begin, I am not putting any blame or criticizing her in any way in this. I'm using her as an example and that's it. But she pulls into an ATM to withdraw cash in a bad part of town at night. Of course, there's nothing wrong with doing that, but I think it's a scenario where you have to be aware of what's going on. And she was far too forgiving or far too open to interact with Willie as friendly as she did. That's, that's just very, again, from my experience, That's typically how crimes are pulled off. You approach the passenger window to get a quick scan of who's in the vehicle, what's in the vehicle, whether it's going to be worth your time to rob it. Clearly, you know, Willie had no concern. He was after $80 for God's sakes. So as long as the car could move, he was going to be interested in it. I wish she had been more suspicious of people. I mean, I hate that we have to live this way, but we do have to be aware of our surroundings. We have to be aware of danger. And if somebody's acting funny, you need to get yourself out of that situation. I saw a YouTube video recently of a woman who was assaulted while in a parking lot by some men wearing a mask. And everything about the situation seemed weird and suspicious but instead, she rolled down her window and she asked them where she got their mask. She found the mask funny. She kept t- like they were walking away and she kept calling them back. And they eventually ca- basically carjacked her. Don't be stupid like that. <laughs> Please just, when you're in some not so good parts of town, when you're in a situation where you could run into trouble, keep your eyes open, your ears peeled. Leave your ATM card behind. It can be replaced. I know it's a pain in the butt. I had to do it earlier this year because of the world we live in. Um, And it sucks. But wouldn't you rather do that than have to plan or have your family plan your funeral? You know, take that as a warning and a reminder that the world can be a little bit more dangerous than we like to think sometimes, especially if you've grown up privileged and not have to deal with the constant threats that some people do while they grow up. I'm, I'm ending the episode here. Um, I hope you got something out of this. I know it was drier than normal and I apologize for that. It is much less dry than the first draft. I can tell you that much. Um, I wanted to get into this because even attorneys I know don't understand how the execution process goes down. And I know it can become a very political thing and people make their decisions based off of what they know and nobody knows anything about it. Nobody knows why it takes so long for, um, you know, the time somebody's convicted to the time they're actually in the execution chamber and they chalk it up to thing, you know, to problems that don't exist. Or they think they have some solution that can speed things up. When in reality, it's the way the system's designed and all the protections that were given to someone who's facing the death penalty cause a lot of this to slow down. I'm not saying we should change any of those. If you're going to make the decision to allow the state to take somebody's life, you need as many protections in place. Because do you really trust the government to get it right 100% of the time? I mean, how often, just with a package that you ordered, how often does the mail deliver it on time? Yeah, they get it right most of the time, but do you want to live in a system where 80% of the time we're executing the right man? (laughs) I mean, I don't. Maybe some of y'all are comfortable with those numbers. I absolutely am not. Um, and you know, it's serious business. I think it's something everybody should understand. So hence my desire to do a little civics lesson this week. I don't think a palate cleanser is appropriate today. You know, we, we have this brutal murder of Miss Johnson. We have Willie have to have his life forfeited because of his decisions. I don't want to end this one on a laugh necessarily why I'm making this episode different from the rest. I don't really know other than I guess I'd rather it be treated with a little bit. I I don't know. I I just want it to be more educational than our standard episode. And I I feel uncomfortable doing a joke at the end. If y'all have any questions about any of this, please, as always, feel free to reach out to me. I may not have explained an aspect well, there may be an aspect I didn't even touch on that you have questions about. I'll be happy to answer any questions. I don't really want to debate anybody <laughs> over the politics of this or you know my opinion about the delays. Um, I'd much rather just serve as a uh, teacher than than a debate student. but uh if we, if you know if we get enough questions, I'll be happy to do a mini sode so everybody can hear the answer to it, but I, I don't expect that to happen uh with us putting a bow on this one that means we've completed 99 episodes pretty cool huh but what's even cooler is that means next week is number 100 now i'm not gonna look there's been a lot of talk it's been a lot of speculation i've had a lot of celebrities who i'm not gonna name who are trying to weasel in on our 100th episode I don't, I'm not going to make it a party because I know, you know, you're, you're going to have these celebrities make it all about themselves. They're going to want to sing and perform. We're not doing all that. It's going to be a nice, simple thing, just you and me and the rest of our listeners. You know, I, I may, you know, get a pony to broadcast from on top of um, if I can get them up and down the stairs because my office is upstairs. I don't know if horses are good about going downstairs. Um, You know, if that doesn't work, maybe if my wife is gone that day, I'll hire some strippers for background entertainment on this podcast. I don't know. It's, it's just, it's nothing wild, nothing crazy. I wonder how, I wonder how the acoustics in a bounce house would be. That could be interesting. I may look into that. All right. Well, enough uh enough talk, enough party talk, enough uh execution talk. Uh this I know December is a stressful month for a lot of people. I know 2021 has been stressful for a whole lot of people. <laughs> and I know 2020 was definitely stressful for almost all the people. So we're just kind of Kind of sitting here in the middle of a poop sandwich, it feels like. Um, but let's keep our hopes up. I'm sure 2022 can't be as bad as what we've been through, right? Right? Lord help us all if if I'm wrong. I mean, the, this canyon has to have a bottom. And, you know, if it doesn't, if next year sucks, then I propose that we all just wander into the woods and start a life there. Why keep, you know, hoping against hope here? What, what You know, I'm game for whatever. I'm just along for the ride. I just tell the stories and try to keep y'all entertained. On that note, I don't know who or what's behind all this, but uh, our listener numbers have jumped up like a lot recently. And that's really awesome. So for all of y'all that have been pimping the podcast, sharing it with your family, sharing it with your coworkers, shoving it down their throats, Threatening them with a knife to listen, I really appreciate it because it's working um, and it's nice. I, I I like the idea of us being able to reach more people, share our stories with more of the world. Um, so y'all got y'all y'all are rocking it, and that's awesome. That's really awesome. Means a lot to me that y'all would do all this. So with that, you know, we're gonna end on that happy note instead of a palate cleanser. Just know I appreciate you all. Love you all. Hang in there. If there's anything I can do for you, just hit me up. You guys are the best. Brad out. Thank you for listening to Killing, Missing, Hidden. Make sure to rate, subscribe, and share. Questions? Email us at info at